1: Thanks for joining us, Rural Scoop listeners. My guest today is Dr. Rick Dalton, the CEO and president of CFES Brilliant Pathways. CEFES is an organization based in New York that's working with schools across the country in both urban and rural settings to help students find ways to get to college. Rick, are you ready to give us the scoop?
0: Um, I sure am. Thank you, Melissa, for this opportunity.
1: I appreciate you being here. Um, Before we dive into what CFES is all about, can you introduce the listeners to you and your background?
0: Sure. Um, Again, Rick Dalton. Uh, I live in Essex, New York, which is a a booming town of 600 people (laughs) on the shores of Lake Champlain. The closest city is Montreal. Um, We're about an hour south of Montreal. Of course, the border has been closed for several months so we we can't get up there um, but I started CFES 30 years ago uh, prior to CFES I was a, a college admission director at Middlebury College in in Vermont about an hour from where I now live and my passion has always been helping students in need low-income students and I I was uh, an underdog myself and uh, struggling in in school, and there were people who stepped up and made a difference in my academic career, and that really just opened up pathways in my own life. Um, hence, I'm doing this this work today.
1: And I read that you did some research that really was foundational to the start of your organization. What was that research about?
0: Well, it, it was uh, Lisa uh, quite a while ago. It was 35 years ago when when I was still uh, a college admission director, and I with uh, three colleagues, two from the University of Vermont, one from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, um, started something called the National College Counseling Project. And we looked at how college counseling in high schools could change the destiny of schools and children in those schools. Mm we surveyed 10% of the nation's schools um, in in year one and and had the research capability of University of Vermont behind us and graduate students and and others. In year two, we asked field researchers to identify those schools that were uh, based on indicators and and sadly those indicators um, of 35 years ago today Um, They too well predict Mm. uh, where students will be in terms of their their educational pathway and too often their sort of economic um, pathway, job pathway, and those indicators are no surprise. um, Family income, Uh, often it is the school or the community that a student is from. Um, too often, it is, it is ethnicity and race that, that predicts where young people will end up. Um, in year three of this research, again, we, we went back to look at the schools that beat the odds, where you would expect 20% of the kids to go to college. In fact, there, there might be 80%. And those were the schools where we, we spent our time sort of going in and, and looking at what the difference makers were. And we, we went to 11 schools all over the country. These were very large schools, urban schools, very small schools, rural schools, schools on the West Coast, um, schools on the East Coast, and the South, and North, um, different uh, ethnic groups in all the schools. And we wrote about this uh, in, in a monograph uh, called Frontiers of Possibility. And that monograph was picked up by a foundation uh, that said, you know, you have some ideas, how would you like to put them to the practice? And we had no idea that we would ever be put to the test. Mm-hmm. I and mean, it's one thing to write about and theorize um, what, what makes a good school and what can change lives. And we, we were able to test our theory on the panhandle of Florida and work with some wonderful people who made huge changes. Um, they doubled the number of kids in each senior class going to college. They lowered the dropout rate. They increased the attendance rate by by large margins. And the foundation came back to us and said, how about working in now 11 schools? And we did that in the Southeast. And at at this point, I decided that this work was just too much fun, and it was time to do this full-time. So I, I started CFES. We called ourselves, initially, foundation for excellent schools fes hmm. and we've gone through evolution and i think any any organization whether it be a school a, a higher education institution a nonprofit, um, a business a corporation there's a lot of evolution and we've right. certainly seen it in in our organization we then became college for every student we kept the fes and then cfes changed to Brilliant pathways. So, so we're now CFES Brilliant Pathways. And as part of our model, whereas we started with college um, and still believe that, that college is, is a, a ticket to uh, move out of poverty. It's a ticket to opportunity. But we also realized and, and saw repeatedly that a career path, that a path to to jobs needed to be melded with the educational path. So now our work is about really changing pathways to college and career readiness.
1: As, a, as a, an organization, one of the things that you've built a lot of work around are what you call core practices. Right. Can you talk to us about what those core practices are and what do sure, they can. look like?
0: We have three. Uh, the first is mentoring, and not in importance. They're all important, but uh, just in terms of mentioning Mm -hmm. Uh, The second would be essential skills, and the third would be pathways to college and career. Now, mentoring means that every student in a CFES program has a mentor, and it might be a peer, it might be a college student, it might be a community leader, a business leader. Mentors are are where you find them, and we spend a a great deal of time uh, training mentors, Mm -hmm. helping schools. And other organizations, we we built uh, mentoring programs for corporations. Um, Ernst Young has uh, what they call College Map mentoring for access and persistence. They have they're now in 37 communities across the country. It's been what what they call their most successful program, helping underserved youth, helping underserved communities. And and we were we were part of that and used our principles. The second practice is the essential skills. And again, evolution is, is a big part of who we are. We, we look to get better every year. And, uh, you know, all of us have seen in the last six months, uh, you and I were um, jesting about this a few moments ago and how our world has changed.
1: Definitely.
0: Has it, hasn't our world changed? We help young people, again, develop what we call the essential skills and they're everything from leadership to perseverance, to teamwork, to agility. And there's six of them that we identify, but that's not the end of, of the list. It's, there, there are many others. And, um, Angela Duckworth talks about grit, which, which certainly fits with perseverance. But it's these essential skills that that we have seen um, over the last 30 years, our, our most successful children. And those children would be those who finish college, and 80% of our kids do end up with a college degree on time. Impressive number. Earn enough money that they can buy a house, they can move out of poverty, they can, they can provide um, space for really other members of their family and start their own families. They can be uh, difference makers in their communities. So what we've, what we've found is these successful kids were not the ones necessarily the highest test scores uh, nor were they the kids with the best grades but they had the essential skills so that has been again part of our revolution as an organization and our research has really taken us to the essential skills and it's like so many things in life it was there it was in front of us 30 years ago and it took us 25 years to really identify (laughs) the essential skills and and the challenge the opportunity is how do we help young people develop those essential skills so that all of our children can can have lives filled with opportunity right and the, the third of the three practices would be pathways to college and career and what that means is really helping young people understand what college looks like getting them on college campus ca- campuses and and helping them understand how they're gonna pay for college. We, we spend a lot of time exposing our kids at the youngest ages we can to higher education and people in higher education, students, professors, alumni, and also to jobs. Uh, we want our, our children to know about, you know, what do the jobs look like and, and where, where are the jobs heading? Where are the, the jobs that will that are here today and will, and will be here tomorrow? And where are the jobs that are not here today, but will be here tomorrow? Mm-hmm. And what does it look like? What's it going to take in terms of training and preparation? So that pathways to college is a, is a big part of what we do. And it's about exposure. Right. And certainly the three practices, it's not as if the three are in silos or separate from one another because... There's a whole lot of in the essential skills and leadership training and teamwork, there's mentoring, and there can certainly be pathway exposure and and pathway skill development, knowledge development is is part of that. So those those are our three practices. And we've, we've, again, gone through change and and evolution. And the, the challenge is how do we help our kids develop themselves, how do they become mentors? How do they go on? Because we're an organization where it's not enough for you to get on the path. You need to reach out and help others get on the path. How do you help others do that? How do you help others develop the essential skills? And that's our, that's our mantra. And it's the, the, as I say to our kids all the time, you're, you're, you're not the future. You're not about tomorrow. You're about today. We need you right now. Mm -hmm. You need to be, you need to be leaders today. We can't wait. And there's a, there's an urgency in terms of the, of the need. And you, you are the need today, not tomorrow, but we need, we need your help right now.
1: And I saw a statistic on your website that you noted that by 2027, there's going to be thousands of jobs that will go unfilled because there are not the people capable of filling those jobs. And so providing an opportunity for students to connect with those skills, which then lead to those jobs, which then really are a disruptor.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, we all talk about the skills gap and, and that, that issue that, that we won't have enough sort of trained, educated, um, citizens, younger citizens who can take on the jobs
2: Mm -hmm. in, in our
0: communities. I look across again, as I mentioned earlier, I'm on Lake Champlain. I look at Vermont and Vermont has a, has a very clear plan. Um, they want to, in the next five years, increase the percentage of citizens from 60 to 70. Hmm. So they want 70% of their citizens to have post-secondary degrees not necessarily bachelor's four year degrees might be two years or it might be some sort of credential of value. But Vermont realizes that if their economy is, is going to grow, they've got to increase. And that's a huge number, 10%. And and Vermont's not a large state. So it's, you know, in in some ways it's, it's doable. um, And we're playing a role in, in helping them.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: But They know that if they don't move the needle from 60 to 70% that there will be 132,000 jobs. Here here we're talking about the skills gap that will go unfilled. And that means, you know, a couple of things that people move to other states where the jobs are, or it means they move to, or the jobs move to other countries. So it's, it's economic survival, um, higher education is. And it's not only Vermont, 50, all 50 states either have plans or will have plans, at least they've talked about plans, in terms of where they want to be. And it's all about increasing the number of citizens with post-secondary uh, degrees, training and skills.
1: So this leads me to another question, Rick. and it's. Specifically focused on rural because you do work in both rural and urban settings, yep. but, but as far as, as rural education and rural students growing up in those communities, how is that going to impact, if we have a rural student that goes to a career or college pathway, how is that going to impact then that rural community? Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: I, I sure can. and And I've thought about it, Melissa, a, a whole lot the last six months. Um, as you know, i've I've just finished a book uh, that will be published in February, and it's it's on you know pathways to college and career in rural America. And I've had an opportunity to to talk with people from all over the country, almost every state, high school students, college students, people in education, people in the world of work. And there are some real issues, but, but I think that there's a, a a real, a, 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 there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's a silver lining in terms of what's happening with the world. And and I didn't see that light six months ago. And I think that, that COVID, um, and all of its travesty, um, has really brought some, um, some benefit to, to our lives, Mm -hmm. um, and some of our communities, um, But that's a, so the, the issue, what does it, what does it mean? Um, a, a young person in a Northeast rural community. And when I talk about rural, there's a real danger. Um, and, and, and I do this, so I'm, I'm guilty. Guilty as charged. Rural in the Northeast isn't necessarily like rural in Arizona. Very true. Or Colorado. Yep. So I, 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 there's a real danger in my making these some of these sweeping statements, and and I want to footnote footnote them by saying that that what I say about rural doesn't apply to all rural communities, but there are some trends, um, there are some uh, statistically significant uh, behaviors in rural communities that are that are troubling. One of them is what what I call in my book, the 1010 10 phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And if you look at rural communities in the Northeast and average class size, 30 up to a hundred kids, the top 10 kids will leave that community. The kids who go off to college, whereas the bottom 10 kids will stay. And We've done the research on this, and it's it's um, you, you don't want it to be as statistically significant as it is, frankly. But I think it'll. I, I think that it can change, and and a lot of well, some of what I talk about in the book uh, addresses this. Now, why do kids leave? One is there aren't enough jobs in rural America, and again, uh, that's that's a, terrible statement because it is so generalized and sweeping. Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to talk about the Northeast. There aren't a lot of jobs in Northeast world communities. And jobs go to places where you have critical masses of educated, skilled, trained citizens. That's where the jobs go. And that's one of the reasons why young people leave. They, they get the degree and many of them have loans especially for four-year colleges, yeah, and they can't live in Willsboro, New York, or Essex, New York, or Lake Placid, New York, and make the kind of money they need to make to pay off the loan. So that pushes them away. And what you tend to have also is you have, um, and again, the statistics bear this out, but all sorts of exceptions, you tend to have families who don't want their kids to go off to college because it means they will have to leave. Um, Again, not all families, of course, but it's more of a phenomenon in rural America than it is in in urban America. And this is something that we we need to bring the jobs to rural America and the silver lining in terms of the pandemic is that we're all learning that we can communicate via Zoom. Um, we don't have to go to the hospital, we don't have to go to the doctor, we can, we can communicate uh, virtually, online. And I think that, that, that we've been talking about this, there's been a lot of language, there's been a lot of talk, but we haven't been doing it and we've been forced to do it in the last six months. And that could pay huge dividends to rural America. Uh, Where I live in the beautiful Adirondacks, um, and I'll I'll just speak about the community where I live, Essex, New York. Six months ago, there were 40 properties for sale. You could easily find a house and you could find a, a very nice house for relatively little cost. Today, there's seven properties for sale. Oh. So people are, they're moving from uh, metropolitan areas to rural and and the the message about uh, being safe, being close knit, working together um, is is being heard. And I think that 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 is a very much uh, a silver lining about what we've all been through in the last six months. And the, the opportunity that I think is going to open up in rural America. That's good news. The bad news is I wrote a book about what was happening six months ago and and some of it doesn't hold (laughs) I'm so happy that it doesn't.
1: Well, and and you know, because you live in a rural community, bringing it back to the school side of things, that the school system or the school itself is really oftentimes the heart of the community, and so investing time and effort and energy into those students to make sure that they do have what they need to be successful, whether it's in college or a career, is going to be key. It's going to be vital to making sure that those rural communities have what they need to continue to, as you say, grow and move forward.
0: Hallelujah. I I so agree, Um, and and you have said it so well. We all need to get involved. We all can get involved. And it's it's not just about going to the school, but you know, kids kids come to us and, and messages we delivered it to young people uh, in our communities, whether it's in church or uh, at the deli or walking across uh, Main Street um, where, where there is no traffic light. Right. Um, yeah, it's it will take a village.
1: Now, when you're looking at Brilliant Pathways. Some of the work that you do, obviously, you're doing on the ground with students and their families. How, how close into contact do you get with those families and their teachers and the community itself?
0: Well, a, a, a different answer today than 12 months ago, sure. certainly, because we're, we're reaching our kids uh, virtually. Um, we have Our, our model uh, is, is as follows. We have program directors who work directly with schools and those program directors train teams of people in the the school so that the team would implement our program, our practices. There would be a CFES plan. We would look at uh, not only our sort of core values and practices, but what, what are the state Mandates. What are the district goals? Mm. And let's bring those together and, and build a plan. So our program director would certainly have contact with educators, would have contact with students, would do essential skill training, um, would, would perhaps even visit colleges with students. But our program director is not in a school full time. Uh, is likely in that school once a month for a day and it would be the team in the school, the CFES team, that keeps that program going. And part of that is is based on our model organization that that is all about good organizational theory and behavior. And we know that if if we do building and 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 the change, create the change, And then we leave after two years or three years or whatever. And then the program is gonna fall apart. So so let's work with others and help them uh, learn our practices and our strategies that in fact we've learned from other schools. So we take best practices that we have learned from schools across the country. We've worked in uh, 40, 42 states. We've worked in thousands and thousands of schools. We've helped a hundred thousand kids, so we've we've had a lot of experience, and we've we've met wonderful people, and we've learned a great deal from the schools and the communities, and the and the colleges and the universities, and businesses and corporations, uh, with which we've worked, and we spend a great deal of time bringing our program to, again, rural and urban, but it it doesn't matter as much today. Uh, as long as you have the, the broadband and the device, you can we can reach young people and their families um, and their edu- and educators in their schools virtually, and and that is an an incredible opportunity and and part of what's going on in in 2020. Part of our vision, our goal, and it's and it's a grand goal. We think everyone needs to play a role. making this happen now if you if you look at the the traditional model and and i I go back 30 35 years we we talk about guidance counselors and college counselors who are often wonderful people skilled visionary changing lives but they can't do it alone right and they are under-resourced and schools are understaffed in terms of this help so our vision is that as many people as possible need to become college and career readiness advisors. And that list of people would include the superintendent, the superintendent secretary, the principal, the principal secretary, certainly teachers in the schoolhouse, the math teacher, the history teacher. It includes also, or needs to include, the bus driver, the custodian, the pastor, families, um, even 11th and 12th grade students so that they can help their younger peers, college students, college educators, professors, administrators, staff. And that is part of our our big push today. We hope to to train and credential um, 5,000 CCR advisors in the next few months. We, we have rolled out a program in the last uh, 14 months, um, but last year it looked a whole lot different than it does this year, because this year it's it's virtual, and that means that there are no borders. Right. That Yeah. So we used to go to Tampa, and that pretty much meant that you had to live in Florida or northern Florida. Or we might do one in Boston, and you needed to be in Massachusetts or New York City and or in Essex, New York. But today we do one of these CCR advisor trainings every month. You can live in any part of this country or Johannesburg, (laughs) or you can be part of Dublin and go through our CCR advisor training. And a lot of what we do is to help trainers, advisors, understand how to apply the practices but we also deal with the issues of the day and as you know Melissa in the last 6 months we've seen 30 35 years worth of change
1: oh on a dime
0: it's right
1: <laughs> yeah Definitely. I, I I, can't. There has never been another time in my career where chain ha, change has been just so rapid and so monumental. We're, we're breaking paradigms left and right.
0: Absolutely. So the the uncertainty is for many who work with youth. It's crippling. You know, what do I do? colleges, what are, they, what are they requiring today? There are no tests. Our, our students didn't have grades second semester. The, the, the whole financial structure, mm-hmm. uh, net tuition revenue, what's, what's going on in higher education? And certainly what's happening in terms of COVID and, and young people going back to college, colleges themselves don't know. So part of what we try to do is um, bring a little bit of certainty and stability to an uncertain world through our CCR training and our ongoing webinars for educators who are part of the CFES family. They have an opportunity to hear what's going on today. Today may be different than tomorrow or certainly next month, but we are a place where they can turn. To help their their children move down that pathway to college and career, and and what the what the trends, and and what the rules are today, so we tap into a, a universe of educational and workplace experts who who help us in turn help our advisors and and ultimately help our children. The-
1: I'm glad that you brought that up because there was an article that was published in the U.S. News and World Report on how the coronavirus is just really changing the face of higher education, and they haven't caught up yet. And we know that universities and colleges across the country are moving classes to an online format, and now there's virtual teaching going on, not just in the K-12 arena, but also in higher ed. And then on top of it, trying to navigate that, especially if you're uncertain about what college is and how to navigate FAFSA and, and how do I pay for it and, and all of that. So it's, I think what you're offering in terms of advisors is huge. Having somebody to help guide you through all of the regular stuff anyway, in terms of college admissions and, and, and knowing what your opportunities are. And then on top of that, throwing in a pandemic. So yeah, it was hard enough before. You talked a little bit about some of the successes that you've had, 100,000 students or more that have gone through programming and have come back and helped to mentor those that are coming behind them. Um, do you have a, a success story or two that you could share with us, something that uh, really speaks to the heart of, of what you're doing, what the work is that you're doing?
0: Wow there', there are, yes I do um, but in in telling a story um, I'm failing to tell uh, thousands of other stories that are equally as inspiring but but our kids overcome the you know just just getting to school A right. uh, million of them are overcoming um, adversity let, let me talk about and, and this is chapter two of, of my book that will be out in, 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 uh, early, early next year. There's a community, not far from here, Uh, Crown Point was part of the, right near Ticonderoga. So it, it, it played a role in the revolutionary war, Benedict Arnold, and Ethan Allen, and all of those crazy folks, um, went, went through Crown Point on the way to Fort Ticonderoga and battles that were fought on, on Lake Champlain. But 30 years ago, um, Crown Point was, uh, was on the warning list. They were about to be taken over by the state uh, the state of New York. There were several things that happened, and it was really the I, I think the perfect storm. I, we became involved twenty eight, 27 years ago, there was uh, over a ten year period, up, up until 25 years ago, there were twelve principals and superintendents. In 12 years, um, 300 kids in the in the school, so so small, high level of, of poverty, test scores among the worst in the region. We began working with them. There were other academic programs that they brought in. A wonderful woman who is still there today, uh, Sherry Brannock became the superintendent. Um, a school board was at war with its Educational community left, and, and uh, wonderful leader of the school board and leaders, other school board members. It just and the community came together, and they they had direction. We connected them to a college across the lake, Middlebury College. They were odd fellows in terms because you have Crown Point with huge poverty, and kids in Crown Point. Their vacation might be to. Uh, go camping with their family uh, 10 miles away. Uh, Middlebury College with 2,000 know, 2, kids, uh, lots, of, lots of wealth, kids who were, you know, they were, they were going to be successful because they were, they were born into sort of families and, and opportunities. Uh, but Middlebury College and Crown Point, again, two different worlds came together and it, it, it made Middle, Middlebury a better place um, by reaching out and, and there's so many lessons that they learned from the wonderful, wonderful community at Crown Point. And Crown Point was lifted up by, by Middlebury. There were students from Crown Point that went to Middlebury. There have been lots of students from Crown Point that have gone on to places like Cornell, um, other high-powered colleges and universities, uh, the college going rate at Crown point went from less than 50% of the kids today. And, and it, and it has been at this level for the last several years, more than 90% of the kids uh, in the senior class go on to college
2: mm-hmm.
0: and they, they graduate from college at very high numbers. Uh, these, these young people are, are highly successful. So I look at Crown point and, and I, say you know that's a real success and the credit goes to the community um the people in the building the people who live in the in the town of of crown point but as i was writing the book and and i spent a couple of days a couple of mornings down at, at crown point i met with sherry the superintendent i met with tara the principal and some of the teachers and i said first of all tell me about your change and, and what you did to change the destiny of your community and your children. And they, they talked about it, and, and it really comes down to just wonderful, wonderful values in terms of, they treat every kid like uh, that, that child is their own. Uh, they know what when, when a kid's birthday is. Uh, they know if a kid likes chocolate or licorice. <laughs> um, but they have high standards and high expectations for all of their kids. Now, there are lots of other things that that, that are part of the, the mosaic of change um, in Crown Point. But I asked Sherry and, and Tara, that I said, could we take the two of you to another part of the country, to a community and a, and a K-12 school, that was struggling that was about to be taken over by the state and could you turn it around they said oh yeah and that just i mean it was inspirational to me that that story that encompasses um lots of people uh, educational leaders community leaders and you know the dream makers and and the young people who are now Living living dreams that they never would have had before. That's that's a story that I really love.
1: You you mentioned your book a few times. What's the uh, title of it?
0: <laughs> um, America's Rural Pathway to College and Career.
1: And who's publishing it? And when is it going to be available?
0: Um, Routledge um, is publishing it. It should be out in February. You know, I've i spent a lot of time. I started the book and. I, I had several people read it at chapter one. Their uh, assessment initially was brutal. You really need to tell your story. We don't need another academic journal. We need we need the story of you know the beautiful story of rural America with all of its challenges and how how we can help this next generation kind of lift up. Their communities, and and our country, and and that's what I tried to do. That's 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 a heavy aspiration. I'm not sure I came anywhere close, but um, that's 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 what I wanted to do.
1: CFES has an annual conference that's coming up soon, and uh, people are able to get involved with that. Can you talk a little bit about what's on the agenda and what can they learn if they attend?
0: Yeah. Well, let me just say that we would love to have folks from Arizona participate. And it's the, the theme is college and career readiness in today's world. So it's all about the changes that have taken place. And there are lots of very practical workshops. Here's how you help young people build essential skills. Here's how you build and strengthen a mentoring program here's how to build resources through partnerships with businesses and corporations not just in your region but national corporations there are sessions on social justice and and what does what does that mean what does that mean in the classroom what does it mean in our in our schools what does it mean in our communities there will be a lot of learning about the virtual and and what's around the corner because, you know we need we need to we need to get ready so we have some wonderful, wonderful speakers. I mentioned Paul Luna, who is is from Arizona, grew up in a um, copper mining town. He has just a beautiful story, um, where his his dad, who may have gone through the sixth grade, was his really his CCR advisor, and helped him go to Stanford. And it's just—it's a wonderful story. So Paul will will tell his story, and he'll bring some um, Arizona inspiration to the to the conference. Starts on the 27th of October, and goes the 28th and 29th, and Eastern Standard Time. Um, it, it begins at one in the afternoon. Um, if those who are interested should go to our website, which is Brilliant Pathways. But let me say that. If, if anyone is interested in the conference and CFES Brilliant Pathways, um, it's possible as a school to become a virtual member. So for a very reasonable fee, uh, a school becomes a member of CFES, they get five spots at the conference, they can send five uh, educators or community members uh, to our CCR trainings. Educators gain uh, professional uh, development points uh, and hours and uh, those outside the, the schoolhouse learn how to, how to work with children. So we would love to have more Arizona schools in, in CFES. And if anyone has any questions, they can they can call me. Uh, they can go on the, online and, and see how to go to the conference, but we'd love to have them become part of the CFES family.
1: Rick, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure that the listeners know about?
0: Well, I, I, I want to end with an encouraging message. And because over the last six months, and, and uh, no matter where we sit, uh, we think about jobs being lost, less in our paychecks. As, as parents and kids, we, we don't know when we return to school or if when we return, uh, there will be a shutdown. That there's a lot of uh, tension and turmoil in our world, in a lot of politics and, and uh, the economy and so on. But I think that this is a really exciting time. And I think it is it is a particularly exciting time for rural America. And a lot of it is, and I don't want to be redundant, we're, we're figuring out and, and we're being forced to figure out um, how to communicate with one another in in different ways different with different technologies and that's going to benefit rural america uh, economically and it's going to benefit rural america in terms of what's going on in education so i am i'm really excited about where where we are heading as rural americans
1: rick thanks for joining me today
0: thank you